next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. How long were you away for? 14 years. When you came back, what are the key things that struck you? That I was not in Nigeria as much as I wanted to be. It's a very quiet rejection. It's actually tough to get a CEO's details, but I got the guy's name. I heard the guy's name. His name at the time was Stephen Evans. So what I did was I constructed a bunch of email addresses. All the variations of Stephen I could use. So Stephen with an F, Stephen with a V, Stephen with a PH. First name, dot, last name, first name, underscore, last name, first name, dash, last name. I think I ended up with something like 12 or 15 variants of what his email address could possibly be. I sent the email and then I started counting the bounce backs, right? And I, I literally counted down to like 11 and then one didn't come back. He knew that I won. And then I was like, okay, that's it. That's the one that's made it in. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. Do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that will be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super-targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audiences, through this podcast. We would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. My guest today is Adia Sawo. She was the former director of digital business at Naimobile, which used to be called Etisalat, one of the biggest telcos in Nigeria. And she was responsible for building a team and a service that enabled content producers, startups, other partners to be able to build on top of the telco in order distribution. So if you think about the music that plays when you are calling the ringtones or some mobile games that are built on top of the telcos in Nigeria, most of those content producers would have gone through Adia at one point or the other. It's a privilege to talk to Adia today. But more than that, today is the first full day that Adia is spending out of work. So she just left that role yesterday. And I'm privileged to just be the one of the first ones to knock at her door and say, Adia, you need to talk to me about your experience of building <laughs> this part of business. So Adia, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you, Dustin. It's a great pleasure to meet you. So we met last year at a conference that I was hosting, the High Growth Africa Summit. Yes, and I you were there in a panel with Ajibota, one of the musicians in Nigeria, and Dibanj. And you were talking about music and how digital technology can enable music to be done properly. So I think we want to start from that and I will still go back to your background. So what is your view about how technology, not just mobile technology, has changed music distribution and even music, the way music is made? Because I know some music were made 
specifically to be distributed via the telcos in Nigeria. How has that changed the industry in the last eight years that you are involved? So I, I was actually really involved for closer to like four or five years. Uh, but really, I think telcos have created a way to monetize distribution. I think the challenge with distribution that existed before was that there was a lot of free distribution there, you know, and it was out of control of the artists. Many artists may still argue that even in association with the telcos, it's still out of their control. But I, that, that's a completely different issue. Right. But I think that Ring Back Tunes, for example, have provided a major, if not the largest source of passive income generation for musicians in Nigeria today. But it's actually shocking how few people actually, one, know about it uh, and two, know how to actually use it. We have always confronted with sort of misaligned expectations of what Ringback Tunes can actually do. Ringback Tunes cannot make an artist. Ringback Tunes can help an established artist or an artist of growing popularity increase their popularity. Can't really make a career. But from the creative point of view, Ringback Tunes does not really help you to appreciate the music. It's only a very snippet of the music. So for me, I want to consume music as just from a creative point because I like that music. Ringback Tunes can help me to know about it, but I'm not going to appreciate the depth of that artist. I think your age is showing that to me. (laughs) I I think that, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I wouldn't put a symphony or, you know, some sort of jazz ensemble or whatever on a ringback tune. That probably wouldn't work. But in the age of catchy lyrics and Nigerian pop music, you can imagine the opening of A Small Doctor as your ringtone. If you don't get money, hide your face. That's a perfect ringtone. That's just it. That's, That's it. So, like, you wouldn't go, like, looking for, to add the whole song. You, you just want a nice recognizable snippet, right? That at least for the user, for the listener is on brand or speaks to them or makes them feel happy to hear it. But then the other bit is the person that is paying for that music. So mm. ring back to just for the people that don't understand it. I think it may be unique to Nigeria. I don't know. But I live in the UK and it's not something that is quite common. Where when you call someone uh, and the tunes that you hear instead of the the normal monotonic no ringing, ringing sound, sound. Yeah. you hear music on the other end yes okay which is good for the person that is listening to mm. it from the other hand mm. but me as a person that you're calling i'm the one that's paying for it yes i'm not enjoying that music no but it serves as a form of identity, right? So when you call me, this is what you're going to hear. This is, you're already getting part of the experience or the Adia experience when you hear the ringtone. Now, at one point, we did try to develop a reverse ringback tune so that you, the buyer, could, um, the payee, could okay. hear the tune, you know, but that product development effort didn't actually reach Because I'm kidding. Fruition. Re- oh, is it, you didn't reach fruition or the people are not using it? No, no, no. We didn't actually complete it. We didn't get it to a process that was smooth enough to my level of satisfaction i think it ended up having too many steps so i just never launched the product right so let's talk about our ring back tunes because it's a very interesting place to start with is it one of the biggest contributors to the business that you were running then? one of the biggest yes okay so and it was one of the first yes it okay. was one of the first yes so that could still falls in the category of traditional value-added services so i guess the original name for the products that sit within my portfolio would be value-added services so the more traditional stuff would be ring back tunes which you hear when you call someone ring tones which you hear when your phone rings that's more popular in the uk Yes. Or SMS-driven services. Okay. Mm. So the ringback tune, is that unique to Nigeria? It's not unique to Nigeria. I mean, it, it's actually also quite popular, you know, in India, China, Latin America. But I think that the age of traditional VAS, you move past that with the smartphone, right? So VAS was popular in the UK. I'm sure you remember that annoying frog ringtone. 
yes. about 10, 15 years ago, yes, right? Yes. But then I, I think around that time, maybe ringback tune technology was not quite available. Right. But then once the UK moved past that ringtone type of behavior, moved closer to smartphones, mm. you know, they just kind of evolved past those types of things. What we tend to see with value-added services now is, is there are some things that are old, tried and tested in these markets and they're just showing up in developed markets like in the uk you probably see text something to a four or five digit number you yeah. probably just started seeing that but we've been doing that in nigeria for you know 10 years and is that necessitated by the telcos in nigeria need to make more money uh, and so they have to be innovative in the extra ways in which to add a value-added service to make money i mean we do need to make more money than I mean, everybody telcos in the uk no 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 not than telcos in the uk right because when you look at your average revenue per user in Nigeria is closer to $5. But when you look at your average revenue per user in other countries, in developed countries, it's closer to $50 or $100, if not $150. What? Yes. How? But the network that you are building is the same. You're spending the same amount of money on the network. And in so Nigeria... let me hear back again. Yes. So in the UK, the average revenue per user... Yeah, what's your phone bill in the UK? Let's start with you. What's your phone so bill? So I pay now, actually, maybe £60 per month. There you go. And what services are you getting, right? Free free calls, unlimited free calls, unlimited internet. Mm -hmm. But it's fine. It's still voice and data. Yeah, yeah. All you're doing in Nigeria, so that's a post-paid market, right? No, and a phone. And that's fine, right? Uh, But you also are on a contract for two years. Yes. At least. Yes. Right, yeah. So at the end of the day, your expenditure is still £60 a month, right? And that's what, $100, okay? You come to Nigeria... Right, And even though you buy your phone separately and you top up or whatever, you may not be an average user. Right? So you are probably a little bit higher on the dollar scale. But when you look at the country as a whole, the country for whom the telco has to build the network, right? most of the users bring us to an average of $5. That's just right. what Nigerians spend on telco. So that means you have to be creative in other areas in which you You do, money. you do. But you see, the thing is, again, because of the timing with which mobile telecommunication services reached emerging markets, we've just adopted services at a different rate, at a different pace we've selected things that we like that are just more important to us we just like to hear music more that's why we like ring back to we, we like noise by the way exactly we do yeah okay. so everywhere there must be something there must be something <laughs> there must be something going on so it's quite unique to me because when i left nigeria in 2004 so ring back to wasn't a big thing i didn't even hear it so when i came back and I said mobile was barely it was emerging and that's yes and, uh, and there was no smartphone mm-hmm. or there were very few smart actually mm-hmm. there was no smartphone i'm going to talk about your story and how you Develop that business because a lot of people that I spoke to said Adia is really did a good job in expanding that that business and that market. She's the person to talk to about well, if you want to build anything. So most startup people I want to talk to about whether they pitched to me about building something. They said oh, we are talking to somebody. Then I don't know you. We're talking to a lady in a T-Salat who can help us. Actually, somebody actually wanted to raise money on the back of the fact that they've spoken to you. <laughs> that they've had a good partnership mm. that can distribute their work. Mm, mm, um, mm. So apart from the ringtones, which other stuff have you seen that enable that technology or that distribution help to develop? Mm. So that's interesting right? because then it, it really starts to speak to um, where our ecosystem is I guess in our maturity curve. So there are actually still a handful of pretty good products. Our airtime loan product also works very well. Um, it's also a major. Airtime loan? Yes, because this is a prepaid market, you may run out of airtime and you may not be able to get more airtime conveniently. So then you just, with a few keystrokes in your phone, you just get 
some credits to tide you over till the time when you can actually go and acquire credit from your normal means. So that product also, because of its convenience, works quite well and earns quite a bit for the business. Now, then you slip into the products that are, they slip out of sort of hardcore utility and more into entertainment. So Ringback Tunes was a great combination of utility plus entertainment, right? Because no matter what happens, your phone has to ring. Yes. You just sort of applied, you know, Ringback Tunes just sort of applied content and entertainment entertainment to something that was a necessary action. Like, I, I mean, Nigerians are, and emerging markets, I, I dare say, are very focused on the payoff, right? And yeah. on utility. So mm-hmm. entertainment now becomes a little bit tricky to sell or sell consistently, right? People, like, even if you look at your normal satellite, people don't pay for that stuff every month or pay for a year in advance. They pay when it's in front of them and then they just make sure they preserve that pay-as-you-go relationship. So other products that are tied to, you know, high utility, high usage, like uh, there's a product called InstaVoice, which is like a voicemail service. We're also looking at financial services. Financial services are also quite interesting. But this is where you now start to run into challenges, right? Because there's a way to build a product, then there's a way to build a product for mobile. And this is where, you know, challenges arise because if quite a few people will sort of build and package a product before they've had their first meeting with Tetelco and then you kind of run in and then you're now stuck. Is it because they see you as a distribution channel? And is that what you provide? They see us as a marketing channel. So most people just come in and say, I have a product and I want you to tell all your subscribers about it. And once you tell them about it, they're going to take it. I think distribution is a more involved conversation. You have an understanding of of the chain, of the end-to-end use of your product. But the most frequent request I get is just tell your customers about it. I don't need you to do anything. I don't need you to influence the product. I don't need you to make sure they get it. Make sure it gets to them in a particular level of quality or is performing at a particular level. I don't need you to check its performance. I don't need you to report statistics. This is what distribution does. Right. What people just expect is, okay, you've got a few million users. Just tell them about my product and they'll take it. And what's the problem with that? It never works. Why? Because again, like I said, the problem first starts with you've built a product and you haven't actually built it for mobile. So I'll touch on a few different problems, right? A lot of the new generation of, you know, digital business or digital product developers build for apps. Nigerians don't really care about apps. Okay. Smartphone penetration in Nigeria is 15% tops. 15%? One five. Okay. So if you want to achieve significant scale, right, you need to consider SMS, USSD, IVR, right? Nigerian literacy levels also have to be considered in Nigeria, right? So you are building something that requires people to read. Do people want to read or do they care to read? Right? This also now brings in video. Can you create a visual product? But then if you create a visual product on what phones can this visual product be viewed? So these are all considerations that most people don't even sit down and think. And, and, and for us on the telco side, that's like super basic. Like who are you building for? How many people do you expect to find? And no, they don't all have smartphones. And even if they have smartphones, they're not necessarily buying data to use every day. You know what I mean? So that's sort of like the first cater of, of uh, challenges. And you build a product and then, you know, there are probably 10 steps to satisfaction of whatever need you are trying to activate. Okay. So it's, it's kind of like, why would you do that over mobile? Because if you look at even the core products at the telco, I yeah. mean, it's usually between one to three steps optimally. So you don't want to reduce that amount of friction. Yeah. So, the, so usually these, these products have a lot of friction. I'll give you an example. Okay. We talked about one on Sunday. Perhaps I won't name the particular product, right? But the product started sending me bulk SMS messages, right? Um, reminding me to to top up um, a particular tool account. Now, a better way to have built that product would have been to say, okay, can I just respond right away with the amount that, that I, I want, want to. to top up that account with 
But no, the way this product was is you just send me a text message with a link to go somewhere else. To move you out of the... To take uh, you out of that particular... Interface, which is a text interface that you're really talking you. to. And move it to a website. Exactly. Right. You know, it takes me to a website where I then probably have to create an account or sign in or put in bank details, right? So, so are you seeing the number of steps there, right? And then I also received this message without signing up for it. Okay. So an easy thing to have done would have been, hello, this is your first text message, we'd like to just remind you, right? How about you just do a quick sign-up process and then going forward, you just text me how much you want to top up your, your toll pass and I'll take care of so that So engaging with you from that interface, not taking you out of it. Yeah. And building, so it's because it's very hard to change people's behavior. Mm-hmm. The best product enable people existing behavior. Mm-hmm. So what you're trying to argue is that why not build a product? If you want to talk to our user on this telco network, mm-hmm. they are used to a particular behavior. Mm-hmm. Build a product that will enable that behavior mm-hmm. rather than build a product that you want to create an utility outside the outside Exactly. Part. So unfortunately, very few people are also dissuaded from talking to a telco because of what they've heard. Right. And these sometimes are often, you know, misconceptions. So they're like, oh, no, if I come and talk to the telco, first of all, okay, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes they may not know who to talk to. Right. So they may not be hard to find. So one of the things I've tried to do is make sure that I am the easiest person to find um, in the industry. How do you do that? How were you doing that? Just show up everywhere. Everywhere, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting involved with the, when you say the ecosystem, you're talking about a startup and entertainment ecosystem. Startup ecosystem, entertainment ecosystem, just general technology, right? Just try to make myself known to the community so that if and when a discussion with the telco needs to be, at least somebody can ask me. On Twitter, Facebook, you know, I've joined many groups. You know what I mean? I, I try to also know who is who, you know, and, and keep an eye on what's actually going on within the ecosystem. So often you'll find people have just built these products without really thinking about the user experience, right? And definitely know how the user uses a phone to deliver that experience. And they just kind of, you know, you now end up with something that doesn't really meet the user's need. Another reason that the asking us to just blast our customers with SMSs doesn't work is that people actually overestimate the response rate to SMS. It's like a tenth of a percent. <laughs> so it really... So percentage of... It's a tenth of a percent? Yeah, response rate. It's not even up to 1%? Nope. So it's actually already an ineffective channel, but nobody believes it, right? But then they forget that wow. even as individuals, you are already ignoring a whole raft of SMS messages on a daily basis, right? And this could be just as a function of the types of notifications that have to be sent out to manage your service usage or your airtime is running low, this person called you, please stop up, buy another plan. By the time you've gone through all of those, um, understandably, there's a little bit of text message exhaustion, yeah. right? So even we inside the telco are looking for different and more effective ways to reach the customer. And we tried a bunch of things. Some have worked, some haven't, right? So for instance, we've tried using uh, IVR, so where you receive a robocall, right? But I, we specifically tried to use that to sell products to people that are not able to read text messages or for voice-driven products as right. well. There's actually a little bit of effectiveness. So where there's something where you need to consume a sound, we would try to use these types of um, IVR uh, outbound calls. You know, but then uh, sometimes customers will pick up, sometimes customers won't pick up, sometimes customers are delighted to receive these products, and then you see like a 2, 3, 4%, you know, pick up rate, which on our end, com- coming from a tenth of a percent is fantastic. But then one person now complains. Do you know what I mean? So right. it's it, and then it now becomes a bit of um, an issue, and you now have to sort of wheel it all the way back and try and find a different way to talk to the customer about that particular product. So we're constantly trying to do new things, but have an ecosystem that 
that is not aware of the evolution that's going on inside the telco business and yes. they come in and they're like but all I want is just SMS and then sometimes they just go buy the bulk SMS and start spamming customers anyway but then the customers don't call them the customers call us oh because they see you as a person they were the ones that they can see yeah, yeah two messages one there's a huge opportunity that the technology product can ride on on the telco distribution yes. network when i started coming engaging with the nigerian tech ecosystem is that the telco is so powerful mm. they have the most maybe the most users or distribution network than most in nigeria uh, everywhere even than banks i think so that's i mean your mom might be wrong but i feel that's so powerful so there's a huge opportunity that a lot of product can be built on the back of that uh, architecture or distribution network but the challenge is builders need to understand that you have to be uniquely for that distribution network and engage with them from the start about usage and utility and user interface yeah. rather than just building and seeing it like a marketing channel i agree with you completely that's a good summation i think what i'm trying to challenge here is our culture it's kind of like you walk into a room you're a guy you want to talk to a girl but you know because of the way she set her face you've decided you know you you now make up a whole story about her and you have actually have absolutely no clue you've not even said hi right but you you've looked at her you're like look at the way she dressed she probably drives a big car probably lives in a big house i'm never going to talk to her and you know it's all over we would have had a nasty breakup you've not even said hi <laughs> right so that's how i kind of view the conversations between the ecosystem and the telco people don't actually come and have the conversation you know but i actually have spent a lot of time you know trying to repair that misconception but it's tough you know and it's, it's a conversation that needs to start find a way to happen at scale, right? Yeah. So, and maybe we haven't really figured out the right way to do that. I, I don't think I figured out the best way to do that at scale and just sort of do some type of mass education of the ecosystem and say, okay, before you come see me, these are the things you need to know. This is a sandbox you can play. I mean, we started doing some of that stuff, right? I mean, we opened up some APIs, um, you know, for people to start trying to figure out ways to use um, SMS, USSD and IVR, you know, within the way they build their products so that they can get some experience and do a little bit of testing. They can now actually use the products for themselves and that type of environment they'll build a little bit better but you know uh, that, that, that i'll leave that to my successor too so let's start now you're going to a new chapter you're moving from uh nine mobile mm. and you're about to initially travel yes and then do something else yes but before we go to that chapter which i'm going to dwell on later on let's start from the beginning you studied you did your undergrad in the uk but before then you did your primary school and your secondary school in nigeria yep. you grew up in a papa I did. let's talk about that let's talk about growing up in lagos i don't want to give out to your age but let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about the era of a papa being a very good middle class place going to going to corona school and then when lucky and a papa oh lucky does not exist so via, no lucky did not exist via and a papa were almost the same par in terms of uh, excuse quality. you i dare say a papa was right on top but it's okay oh, a papa was right on top more than via yeah, yeah, okay okay a papa was the business back then but was the business okay <laughs> let's talk about that let's talk about your experience of growing up in nigeria and then before going to the uk mm. and, and how that's shaped your thinking about this country the nigeria and what is happening now growing up in nigeria yeah so. growing up in a papa and then I, I wanted to have a link between that and how that has shaped your understanding of the country and before you went to the us and uk okay so primary school in Corona, Papa secondary school in the Nigerian Navy secondary school. Hmm. I mean, I think the memories are still quite fresh of my childhood growing up because I mean, that that was what I had to sort of hold on to when you sort of go to these foreign lands and you know, you are, everything around you is strange. The people are strange, the food is strange, the habits are strange, the culture is strange, right? So all you have to hold on to is your memories and anybody that sort of fits into that. Um, but I think somehow you just kind of ambiently pick up our attitude um, and our uh, enterprise 
polarizing culture, which kind of, when I went away and came back and then entered the workforce. How long were you away for from your university undergrad to business school and work? How long I think it was 14 years, something like that. You were away from the country, not living actively in the country for 14 years. When you came back, obviously a lot of things have changed. Yes, yes. What are the key things that struck you? That I was not a Nigerian anymore, as much as I wanted to be. Nobody was going to give me that version. So it took me a while to understand the nuances of that. I don't know if if rejection is too strong a word, but it was as if I owed everybody an explanation for my experience, for my opportunity having lived abroad, or being educated abroad. Meanwhile, it wasn't even my decision. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's as they say, before you're born, once your parents marry, your future is shaped. I had absolutely nothing to do with the decision. It's not a case of, you know, daddy sent me to London. Yeah, you can't say that till you're blue in the face. So unless your parents decide that that's what they want to do. So coming back and just sort of realigning myself culturally was a very, it took a long time to learn that lesson. And I'm still not going to pretend like I feel like I figured out everything. But I think it's easier now. And I think there are more people are aware and a lot more of us have gone through this experience. Because when you leave Nigeria and you leave for that long period of time and you go far away and you are far away from every familiar community, move into and adapt to new communities and you change. I mean, I left Nigeria at 16, 17. I came back when I was 30, right? So my whole adulthood at that point in time was shaped by a completely different set of influences, right? So you, there are a lot of things, like being British now, there's a very strong sense of personal space, which is completely absent in Nigeria, right? You know, so th- these are the little things where you walk in somewhere and then the culture around you has told you you should be uncomfortable. But in Nigeria, it's completely different. But then you now also go to America where attachment to family is only required on Thanksgiving, once a year, right? The rest of that time, you better go and be grinding and earning your money to take care of yourself somewhere. We borrow money from who? Do you understand? So, so these were now the influences that shaped me. So now I come back and I step into the workforce, which I'd never been in before uh, because I left so young. And then you have, you know, all of these habits and all of this culture that you've picked up from somewhere else. And you're thinking, okay, but I grew up here and I know people, I'm from here, but I put it just, so it's a very quiet rejection. At the time I came back, I don't know where we were in that wave of people coming back to Nigeria, but I know quite a few people that came back between like 2003 and 2009 and it was just too hard and they went back because they couldn't assimilate and they couldn't blend in. I would say probably by far my toughest lesson. And was it harder because once you are in the state, every form of rejection, you could rationalize it. Yes. Say, this is not my country. As being a foreigner, yes. This is not my country. Yes. I will go back home yes. one day. This person talked to me this way. That's fine. That's fine. It's not my country. When well, you came back to your country and you felt that, you was it, it harder? It was much harder. It was much harder. And it was harder for me to see. Right? Because the visual is much easier to appreciate, right? Because, you, you know, you already see the things that separate you from the people who are treating you differently, right? There's usually, there's a language separation, there's an accent separation, there's a color separation. So you already have, you know, you're from a different locale, you know. So you already sort of say, okay, these are the basis for our differences. But when you come back and you are amongst your people, but yet you are not amongst your people, it's very, first of all, it's tough to see. At least it was tough to see when I came back. It took me years to understand exactly what had happened to me. And and literally, if nobody explains it to you, you'll be completely oblivious and be wondering why you're life is that bit harder. Well, is it more obvious in the workplace than in family or where is this more pronounced? No, no, no. I mean, of course, your family is obligated 
to love you and explain things to you. You know, which mine did. But, you know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs who have a different understanding of corporate politics or, you know, just that workplace relationships, how they are formed, how they are normalized and all of that. So it wasn't something that I was prepared for. Um, but I think, to be honest, you know, the way we structure communities in Nigeria anyway, we still do that with languages, right? If you speak one language and you don't speak the other, you're immediately isolated once you walk into a room and then, you know, people just pick the language they are speaking. You're either in or you're out. Right? Well, I think it was similar to that type of experience. But again, because it was a new dimension of the thing, I wasn't expecting it. In a workplace, majorly. I wasn't expecting it anywhere. Okay. So it was that shocking for you. Yeah. Did you think about moving back? Yeah. You were here and you were here for good. Yeah, that was it. So your background, you studied electric electronics. Yes. And you worked in the States. Yes. There's this interesting story I wanted to share about how you got your job in the States <laughs> after your business school. Okay, so... It was a real good hustle. After business school, or the first, the very, my very first job... The one that you got with a big, with a good hustle. Well, can you come back to Nigeria, but... Uh, you got a job in the business school. Is it after business school? Yes. You could argue that the hustles are plenty, actually, because my for my very first job, um, I was in the States applying to graduate school. Nobody was interested. But there was this conference for the National Society of Black Engineers. Is this the one you... Okay. Yes. So, um, so, yeah, I heard about the conference, but it was a few states away, and I had to gather a few hundred dollars to afford the plane ticket and the hotel to make it down there, right? I knew no other way to get there, right? So I think I had to say something like $800. To get there? Yes, but I lived in the U.S. at the time. I didn't have the permission to work. I didn't know how to make money. So I went back to England, where I did have permission to work. So that's strange. You could afford money to go to England? I already had those tickets. Right. So those yeah. tickets were already sort of purchased. Right. So, okay, so you had a ticket to return back to England because you studied your undergrad in England. Mm-hmm. So you have a visa to work mm-hmm, in England mm-hmm. as a student. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So And you wanted to go to another state. Mm-hmm. So you have to go back to England, <laughs> work as a data yeah. entry Yeah, yeah I did office. some data entry, yes. yes. And then you gathered the money? I gathered the money. Bought myself another ticket to come back to the States. Okay. So I, <laughs> I didn't want to break the law because I did not have the right to work in the U.S. And there's something about being an immigrant. You are sometimes hyper-conscious. You don't want them to fling you out of their country because you know they can't, right? So I did not want to break the law in the U.S. So, I mean, I gathered the money for all the tickets. I went to work where I was lawfully permitted and I could go and get a job and I knew how to get a job. Came back to the U.S., got the ticket to Indianapolis was where it was that year. I think this was 2000 or 2001, 2001. One. conference was two days in fact i just found this resume the other day and, and like i was catching all kinds of feelings right so i printed it on blue paper because i wanted to stand out I, mean, I had absolutely nothing to offer right literally even my degree wasn't enough i had to spell out the classes that i took and you see the difference between a u.s education and the british education is that in your undergrad in england you go right into the core of the degree that you're looking for where that's a little bit delayed in the u.s you maybe get to that in your final year or in a master's program i don't know what they do in underground but basically I was getting and the reaction I was getting was oh we'll put your resume in our database we'll put your resume in our database just, just that stuff that just kills your soul when you hear it right when you're looking for a job so um, on the second day of the conference around like 4 o'clock when I'm pretty sure my head was hanging down so low it probably was gonna touch the ground I'm walking past this guy his name is Russell and he just called me he's like yo what's going on what are you doing should be you know standing up straight looking for a job and I was like man everybody has said they'll put my resume in their database and I don't know who else to talk to but he said oh but you've not talked to me so come let's sit down just lovely older gentleman right and he invited me to have a seat now this guy worked for a telco and this guy 
had at the time radio frequency engineers working for him. Now I wanted to be a radio frequency engineer. I, I just didn't know whether I was going to do that over an air interface or with semiconductors, but I knew I wanted to be a radio frequency engineer because I eliminated all the specialties associated with the classes I hated. What's unique about radio frequency engineering? It was just something that I liked. I mean, I got it. Do you get? So anyway, I sat down with the guy and he's like, oh my God. I mean, like I, people like you work for me. So let's talk. So uh, he took my CV and he said, I'm going to call you. I'm not going to put your resume in any database, right? This was like March. And then I never heard from him, right? Then I heard from the company six months later. Interesting. What they, are you doing between that and the six months? Agonizing as to why this guy didn't call me. Like I was freaking out because that, that was the realest and the best conversation I had at this conference, right? So, so during that time, you're still in business school or you're no, just... No, 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 no business school. This is so fresh out of... So you're still in the bachelor's. And just waiting. Oh, just of bachelor's. Bachelor's, yes. Okay. This is my bachelor's. And you're just in the States, just waiting. I'm just in the States, applying for more in, jobs. Was it running out? No, I was renewing. You on was, a visiting visa? Yeah, I was on a visiting visa. So there's a pro, there's a process for renewing it. So I, I was, once in the states. Yeah, once once in the states. Yes. So I was applying to graduate schools, like I said, while I also looking for jobs. I mean, that time I applied to MCI, WorldCom, AT and T, all the big telecom companies, right? But I got there right after the dot com bubble, so they were laying off people by the ten thousands. You know, so it really was a terrible time to be hovering around looking for a job. Anyway, so I met Russell. You know, then didn't hear from him for a few months. Then because the man actually put my resume in the database. Right? but put some notes on it. HR from that company, it's called US Cellular. They called me and said, okay, Russell is no longer with the company, but he mentioned, you know, that we should look at your resume and that we should talk to you. So after that, you know, one thing led to another. A couple of interviews later, I ended up my first job. In the state. In the state. In Des Moines, Iowa, which was a a lovely little state full of corn and pigs. Yes. But but yes, they were paying me, so I went. (laughs) And then, so you were able to leave that net. So let's Fast forward to when you came back to Nigeria. Yeah. And the same thing repeated in St. So you have to go get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so you left the state during the uh, the recession that was big. And, and then you came to Nigeria. Were you... So it seems that you bond. You said, like, I'm coming here and I want to do something. I'm not planning to go back even yeah. the rejection stuff. What was the experience of getting a job like? Initially, you work in a family business, right? Yes, yes, okay. yes. So then you said, okay, I want to get a job. Did you... Because a lot of challenge that people that came back have is, oh, they thought, some people would think that, oh, I have to start at the top and every other job they offer me, but I don't want that. Did you experience where they gave you some jobs that you feel that I don't want to do this? You have identified a few jobs that you want to go after. Yeah, so I knew that I wanted to work within my field of competency. Which um, is? Telecoms, telecoms, technology, right? So I, I didn't want a situation where you'd end up working in an industry that's foreign because it becomes very tough to earn your worth or at least my perceived worth, right? Because I'm there thinking, okay, I have X number of years of experience. I've been to business school. This is roughly my expectation of what I would like to earn. Um, you know, and then you now have to decide how you are going to adjust for the Nigerian context, right? Because that's always a thing. You always think, okay, this is what I was earning when I was in the US. Of course, I should be making the same thing when I come to Nigeria. But ultimately, that really doesn't make sense. And nobody's going to give you the time of day. Even if they do, it's temporary. Trust me, you won't have that job in two years, right? Because it's just, it's just going to become unsustainable. So yeah, I had to sort of resolve all that. The first job I got... When I came back, I or the first job offer I got, I think was more out of goodwill. And again, this was still the problem I was trying not to fall into, right? Because I mean, the person just kind of made me an offer that they could afford. And I said, well, I really appreciate this offer. And, and we're still friends to this day. And I still express gratitude for that offer that I received. But I said, this is my target. Now, this person thought I was crazy, right? You know, but 
I said, okay, these are the companies that I think are going to be able to um, have a conversation with me uh, and give me a job that I'm going to offer some value to and then maybe have a chance of getting paid at the level that I wanted to, right? So that was what ended up happening. I mean, I heard things about certain companies that kind of naturally eliminated them from the discussion, which now left then Etisalat as one of my options. So I usually start the story. I was sitting at a bar in a red dress and then I met some directors in the company at the time. Now, turns out one of those directors and I had worked at some of the same companies in the u.s so random you are in a bar you just and then it just came well in. the bar happened to be a bar where a bunch of etisola directors were staying which was why i was at the bar i wasn't just there coincidentally i was sitting there strategically in the strategically right because i mean look uh, hotel bars are actually great places to network and possibly get jobs in lagos right so i didn't know that at the time but a friend of mine said they're a bunch staying here i was like okay fine we're gonna have a drink let's go have it where i can potentially meet somebody that can support mm-hmm. my destiny so i did they made one introduction. It was a false start, right? So I, I met the person that logically should have hired me into Etisalat, but the conversation just didn't work out. And I now found out that perhaps our working relationship might have been a bit difficult because I was more qualified than the person that was interviewing me. So once I understood that, the person ended up leaving the organization shortly after. Like I want to pick some learning here. Yeah. You strategically position yourself. So somebody said the best jobs are not always advertised. Yes. So you are not waiting for advertising. No. You're not peddling your CVs about. You maybe you did bit not really a little bit, but yeah. But you strategically position yourself to be where people are having conversations that you can be. So I was doing that, but so first beyond doing that, right? You have to think about okay, who wants to know what I know, right? So I sort of built networks in the US, and I went into management consulting, also for telecom companies, touched a bunch of different areas, blah blah blah. So I said, okay, fine. Who is going to be interested in what I know? I thought to myself, we had a burgeoning VCPE industry, right? So I was talking to a couple of PE firms, uh, VC firms at the time, sort of saying, okay, which person here has operational knowledge from inside a technology or a telecom company that you are making very, you know, all of these massive investments in? I'm like, these are businesses that I know and I know quite well, right? So I was asking them to create a position into which they would hire me, Yes. right? And I said, look, I believe that you can't just invest in this company and sort of step back or put somebody that is, you know, just maybe a finance person, right? There are nuances that need to be understood about the business. So that was my pitch to investment companies, right? And to telcos, I was like, okay, where's your strategy department, right? So what's your strategy and business development department? I can sit down here, you know, if you're new, you're old, you know, what are you competing on? How are you structured? Blah, 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 blah. Right. So that pretty much was it. So yeah, then I put myself in places where I could meet those types of people. Like I called alums of all my schools and said, who do you know in all of these companies? You know, can you connect me? You know, this is who I am. If you're talking about me, just, you know, say these one or two sentences and, you know, just to whet appetites for the conversation. So those actions actually got me some interviews. So those interviews led somewhere, but not quite where you wanted to be because of that difficult. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you sent an email. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, so I found out his name and, and it's actually tough to get a CEO's details because nobody wants to be the person that sort of, you know, put them in touch with the CEO and the CEO didn't want to be reached, right? And, and this was still at a time when this information wasn't really widely available. But I got the guy's name. I heard the guy's name. I hadn't seen it spelled. His name at the time was Stephen Evans. So what I did was I constructed a bunch of email addresses. All the variations of Stephen I could use. So Stephen with an F, Stephen with a V, Stephen with a PH. First name, dot last name, first name, underscore, last name, first name, dash last name 
I think I ended up with something like 12 or 15 variants of what his email address could possibly be. And, and I thought to myself, well, all I need is for one to just get to his inbox. That's really all I need. So it was funny. I sent the email and then I started counting the bounce backs, right? And I, I literally counted down to like 11 and then okay. one didn't come back. He knew that that one. And then I was like, okay, that's it. That's the one that's made it in. And, you know, incredibly, in less than 24 hours, Stephen had responded, right? So, of course, I sat down and constructed this email, had a few people read it, you know, because it was very, very deliberate. Right. I was like, hello, this is who I am. And you kind of introduce yourself, but you introduce yourself to the person, um, giving them the reasons why they should call you back. These are the telcos that I've worked for. This is what I did at those telcos. I just want to call, I wanted to come and chat about the industry, industry, whatever, my foot. I wanted an interview, right? So, but I just said, look, all I need is 20 minutes of your time just to kind of understand the Nigerian telecommunications landscape, right? So, but he saw the trick I was pulling, right? Because he was ready for it. it. Ended up being a two hour interview, right? So, of course, I had my resume, so which I attached to the email, of course. So you attach your resume to Of course email. I did, yeah, of course I, I was do. about to ask that. Did you just send the email and it open for reply and then you can get things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, I'm pretty sure I attached my resume. I was like, oh yeah, in case you feel like looking at it, it's here, right? So he looked and, you know, we scheduled a meeting and that was one of many, many, many conversations. So the two hours meeting, tell me about that. What happened during that two hours when you were wow. having? Wow. Um, he analyzed every sentence I put on my seat. Like he wanted, I don't know what the guy was digging for, but he wanted to make sure that I could back up every assertion that I made, everything I claim I built, everything I claim I achieved. I had to tell him each narrative from the beginning to the end. I feel like that is still probably the most intense grilling I've ever received from an interview in my life. I think any have beaten that. And after that, then it sent you to your other interviewers. Yeah, so I had another five interviews with different people. In, in the organization. In the organization. So of course I met HR, I met finance. That's, that's the other way around. Normally you have those conversations with those people and they get to the CEO as a last No, pick. no, 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 no. No, 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 no. So I, I met HR. So the first person he sent me to uh, after HR was the person that managed the RF engineers within the business. So he sent that guy, a great guy called Timmy, to interview me just to see if I just put it on my resume or I was for real. And that's not the role they're interviewing for. Just want to be sure that yeah. what you put in your resume I was an engineer, in fact, it. yes, that I could talk about it. So it was funny. It was a very enjoyable interview. I ended up putting Timmy on the back foot. So at one point, Timmy was like, wait, 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 stop. Excuse me. I'm the one doing the interviewing here. What are all these questions you're asking, asking me? But uh, Timmy actually was one of my first friends in the organization. So after seeing HR and Timmy, I now had to go back and see Stephen again. So this was meeting number two, and then we talked. It's almost we didn't have the conversation. Stephen in Nigeria? No, Stephen is British. So we had the same conversation again, but with a different perspective. He just you know, wanted to understand how you know because he has it. people that have validated your claims independently yes. Yes. or away from him. Yes. So he's gotten through that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then at that point, he now wanted to know the names of the people that I reported to in each of those roles, which I gave him. So then I left that meeting again. After which, I think I gave Stephen eight names: four bosses and four colleagues. Stephen called everybody himself didn't delegate that work to anybody right so then literally That's announced a great that CEO <laughs> because hiring is the number one job of the CEO yeah, it, it is. And hiring was the job he'd given to that person that I had a conversation with and that they were not able to um, deliver. I think I, I hired in the end something like 20, 25 people into EMTS, which is the official name for Etisalata, now Nine Mobile, right? So I had quite a few people into EMTS. So I, I had to fine tune, discover and fine tune my own hiring style, uh, you know. But even in that time, I don't think I checked references as thoroughly as I was checked by Stephen. So after that conversation, I think I came back again to the office 
just had a conversation with a couple of different people in finance. I did conversation with someone else in sales. So this was seven conversations in and somehow they never could get these people in the same room at the same time. So I was driving to the office. So I drove there on like six occasions. It was actually getting quite aggravating. At, at what point do you know that this deal is done or every point in time you are thinking it could fall through? I thought it could fall through at any point in time. I, I wasn't taking anything for granted, right? It wasn't until conversation number eight, which at one point I had to call a fellow alum of mine from Kellogg's name is Topper, who is the CEO of Morph Africa, actually. Um, so I called Topper and I was like, my God, you know these people you've met, Stephen? I, I mean, like, I don't understand. What is this insanity? They're driving me crazy. Ah, you know, because I'm like, what else am I supposed to say? I've talked about this resume. I've, I've said everything. And he was like, Adia, calm down. Like, they won't keep calling you if they don't want to say yes. They want to say yes. And it's funny how you are in the process and you don't really think about it that way. So when Topper said that to me, I was like, okay, cool. All right, fine, fine. I'll go see them the eighth time. So now, the eighth time, I'm outside Stephen's office. And then while I'm waiting, one of the people who he had sent me to see, one of the guys in finance, his name is Wally, he eventually became CFO. So Wally walks out of Stephen's office and says, oh, when are you starting? And then I was now like, okay, fine. So this guy has just been stringing me along and, you know, they'd made a decision. But then I still went in. I didn't tell Stephen what Wally said to me. So Stephen was still, you know, going round and round. And then uh, he was like, okay, I'd like to make you an offer. So it wasn't until I had the offer in hand, I signed it and everybody was happy. And I went back asked Stephen. I was like, what was that interview process for God's sake? Like that was intense. And then he apologized. He was like, I'm sorry, but I just had to make sure that you were legit because you are going to be working directly with me. So I needed to check and check and triple check. Um, but you see, the interesting thing is that um, he was doing that much checking on the back of a bad hiring experience. Right. So it just tells you that even as a CEO, you can make a mistake when you hire somebody. And he put me through that rigorous process because he did not want to make the same mistake that he had um, made before. recently made. Yeah. So and what were you hired for at that point? So I was hired to be the head of strategy and business development. But even then, again, on the back of this mistake, he changed my title. He said that even though everyone else was known as the head of department, I would be known as a senior manager. That he didn't want to send any kind of impression that I had hired a squad of strategy people that were in my department. I said, okay, whatever you want. I was getting paid, right? So the work was still the same. I was like, call me whatever you like. But it took Stephen three months to start calling me the head of department anyway. So I didn't even ask his permission. I just went and adjusted the title of my card. And we never had a conversation about it, right? Because at least by the time I got there and I demonstrated my value, annoyingly so, he not only started referring to me properly as the head of department, he said he wasn't going to hire a director anymore. I'm like, well, why don't you just give me the job? What do you mean you're not hiring a director anymore? So there's supposed to be a director on top of the head. There was supposed to be a director between me and him. But because the relationship worked well and I guess he was getting whatever he needed he um, stopped looking for a director and then you became a director by default no uh, well not by default I got the director's work but I didn't get the director's title or pay You're living as a director now. Yes, I'm living as a director now, but I became a director after I moved to another department. Right. Yes, there were a few successes and massive failures that meant that I did not become a director in strategy. It's a tough mandate to have. So you're working directly for the CEO, right? And this was where I was also sort of making my isolation from the rest of the organization worse, right? Because you are then perceived as the CEO's pet. Yes. So that really didn't help my returnee case at all. And then... you see that they saw you as somebody oh if only I've gone to Kellogg's and I had a BS in Sheffield I would have got that as well or oh, uh, that 
this guy just hired somebody that he thinks is smarter than There's smart. a lot of stuff that's at work there, right? It doesn't paint a flattering picture of, of us as a people, right? I'll be very honest with you. So so it was mixed up in a lot of things. Okay, this one traveled abroad and came back. They are probably paying her dollars. They were not, right? So people were making a lot of assumptions about how my package was probably superior to other people's. But, you know, all of this was done because they are looking at me and they're like, we are the same or we are mates or I should be making more than her. All this is without having a conversation with me to understand my experience or to understand how many interviews it took to get me to, I mean, like even now as I've left, I still have not met anybody that has had that many conversations with people on the way in to get the job, right? So there's that. There's also the fact that you're female and working for a male CEO, right? So there's a lot of sentiment around that. There's a lot of... And assumptions. Yeah, a lot of assumptions, right? That, that the fact that you're a single female actually makes it even uh, worse. So people don't even hesitate. You know, you don't have a husband that might serve as a moral compass for bad behavior, right? So in the absence of a husband, they're like, she's a bad girl. She, um, you know, there's something Which interesting going on. Which is a cute thing in this culture that the people just assume the worst for a single female after a certain age, which they don't assume for men. Yes. Um, even though, I mean, I think we know that in reality, these things happen you know, but there's still a predominance of that assumption with women. I think it's just a symptom of how empowered women are to go out and actually earn a living. And when I say empowered, how educated they are and how much sort of cultural encouragement they receive to go out and earn a living, right? Because you get pressure to do a whole bunch of other things, but nobody really pressures you to go get a career. Nobody pressures you to... You know, you may go study, get a master's, get a PhD, but it's for decoration. Come back home and cook for somebody. If you're not cooking for somebody or somebody is, you are not validated as a woman. You know, so it, yeah, that's also another angle to it. Right? So all this assumption about how you got it affected how you actually were perceived by some colleagues and affected some of the ways in which you are able to execute. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you get past that? Well, first you have to know about it, right? I think the other thing is my boss at the time used, when I say used me, used my department the way you normally use an internal consultant. Right, you deploy an internal consultancy to a department where you want to gain some additional visibility, right? And then construct action out items out of that visibility and then keep it moving, right? Now, not everybody likes that, right? So, when you are, you know, and of course, I've sat in that chair now, right? But when you are the manager who is on the receiving end of this inspection, it is very uncomfortable. So, you know, and then for a team to function optimally, there has to be team agreement that that person will be received. And let's just say I wasn't quite successful in getting that team agreement. Uh, or my boss wasn't successful in getting that team agreement when it was now time to promote me because there were certain lessons I had to learn. And that really was the sort of come to Jesus moment where I realized that I had not managed my stakeholders properly to enable, you know, getting the feedback I needed to get promoted in that particular role. So there were a bunch of things mixed in that, right? So, of course, um, me being culturally distant was definitely one of them. Um, two, the mandate that I had and the way, you know, my unit was deployed by the CEO also played a heavy part. So it became difficult for someone to potentially invalidate their own work by saying she's good. So it was a tough question to sort of ask and, ha- and get an answer to. Yeah, but you moved past that over time. So Steve eventually left the business. Yes. How did that affect you? Because it looks like he was maybe your champion, that's to some extent, because he, he knows your work and he can validate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was my boss, right? So yeah, he was. Um, but before he left, there was some restructuring that happened within the business. So I'd sort of worked for him for like three plus years. So I was looking for the next thing. And when it became obvious that the director of strategy role was not going to be that next thing, the digital media department was, I guess, extracted 
out of the commercial unit in order to sort of create a focus for it. So Stephen calls me and said, okay, look, here's this department. You're familiar with them because I'd been deployed in that area, you know, for some other project, right? And he said, look, you know, we need to make this thing bigger. The job is yours if you want it. Now, I actually was pretty angry at the time. I had my sights set on a director role in strategy and I felt like I had done everything I was supposed to do to get it. So it, it actually took me a few weeks to decide on the offer. I got some advice from some very good friends who just said, look, they are good there take it it's probably the next wave of what's going to be happening within the organization some very interesting stuff could come out of there just go there and see how it feels try for a while Um, but it was a significant mental and emotional departure for me because i'm coming from strategy which is like a pure like you know planning role you know i worked in a lot of silence you know business development where you are pretty much sitting down managing expectations on both sides negotiating structuring deals to commercial where there's the urgency of a revenue target it's a completely different like psyche. So yeah, it was a very intimidating shift that I had to make, but I made it because I was... Did you have to learn new stuff? Was it a steep learning curve for you? That, that's a that's an interesting question. Yes, in terms of the subject matter, I had to learn a lot. So you can imagine I'm coming in and, you know, on one hand, you can say I've been parachuted in to lead this team. Who knows the work that I have no clue about? But of course, I knew something. You know, I wasn't just put there to not know anything. I mean, I knew how to build the team. I knew how to figure out what the core problem was. I knew how to sort of build the partnerships. I knew how to sort of take us from point A to point B. That's what a strategist does, right? It's just, you know, how do you get from your concept to your goal? Figuring out what you need to do to get there, you know? So that I knew, right? So the team was very um, generous and receptive eventually. It took some time, of course, because you have to deal with the internal sentiment around, okay, who is this person they've brought to come and do this work? Who told them that this is the person that can do it? She doesn't even know the work safe, right? So, and the work was to take out the um, digital out of the value-added services? No, so pretty much just take the value-added services unit, all right, and oh, just grow it. So pretty much just own the own, yes, yes, yes. Was yes. someone else doing that before? Yes, there was someone else that had, that had started the unit, yes. They have to step down or? They just had a, a sort of multi-pronged remit, right? So I think they had um, two or three major things they were focusing, right? And basically, that was now split up and each was it became a separate department so they kind of gave that person something else to focus on right? and then they just took you know VAS and gave it to me Right. Okay. So this person was handling a lot of things before. Now he's yeah, focusing on stuff. Yeah. So it was simplified so that, you know, because when your hands are too full, you're not really going to achieve too much, right? And we wanted each of these subunits to grow in and of them, you know, themselves. And the remit for your subunit was to grow the value of their services. Yes. Specifically, not just for entertainment, but for everything. For everything, yes. Just go out and find the opportunity. Roll. Start. What was the remit of partner that you were supposed to be leading? So, just grow the value-added services unit. Sometimes you get a lot of instructions, sometimes you don't. When you work for a CEO or a CXO, you often don't get a lot of instruction, right? Because they're busy thinking about many things. So, that's the difference between working for a C-level and working for, you know, different levels within the organization. CXOs don't really spend too much. Yeah, so working with a CXO, you know, you you really have to take a lot more initiative. Pretty much all I got was, okay, this is this department. What they do is value-added services. This is your revenue target. That pretty much was it. So, I had to go find the money wherever it was going to come from. So, um, I mean, I sat with my team and I think when I got there, I mean, the unit was earning all of its revenue from SMS alerts, right? So there were opportunities with USSD, opportunities with IVR, opportunities to branch into monetization of, you know, um, apps and so on and so forth. Our Ringback Tune platform was still, we were still trying it out. We weren't really sure whether Ringback Tunes were going to do well. So at the time, I think they had deployed it uh, and it hit the ceiling of 
of capacity, right? So they did a really interesting promo and they just hit the ceiling, which at the time was like 500,000 people or something like that. It really wasn't high. So yeah, they essentially just said, yeah, this is your target for the year. Carry on. You and know. then you just ran with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. Even though you're working with a team that has some sentiment that they don't understand you, you're, you're from different culture, and maybe they also have the uh, notion that, oh, she's a CEO's person coming here. Yeah, that, that. So maybe kind of assumption here. Now, were you able to navigate that easier because of your experience coming from the UK and US and in, in a culture that's supposed to accept you and you have that cultural rejection initially? Does that play any role or impact? Well, that assumes that I was perfectly integrated abroad. No, no, no. When you came from... Th- no, no, no. I know. But you're saying that there would have been experience to leverage yeah, if you yeah. can claim that I was successful, yeah. you know, abroad. And in some cases, you are successful, but in some cases, you are not. If anything, when you're not successful there, nobody's really going to communicate with you either. Yeah, you're yeah, still yeah. dealing with... No, I'm uh, talking about... You know, but when you come back... Yeah. Uh, no, there were two completely separate experiences. experiences two completely separate ah, So the experience you had at that 80 Salat team that you joined mm-hmm. was totally different. So what did I rely on? I did not rely on the fact that, I mean, yes, I've been well practiced in integrating into other cultures, but it wasn't those other cultures themselves that gave me the tools, but it was more, okay, let's break this relationship down to our commonalities and then build a positive foundation with that and then go from there. Right. Now, of course, I'd also had a lot of lessons in leadership, right? I also had an understanding of personality types. But I think more importantly, I also had an understanding of my personality type and how it impacts other people. So I'm ridiculously extroverted, <laughs> or at least maybe I'm calming down as I get older, but I'm very, very extroverted. And sometimes that has a negative impact on someone that is not as extroverted or is introverted, right? So I had to work very, very hard to find that commonality and adapt my style so that I would be able to communicate effectively with each of my team members in their own right. Because unfortunately, I was fighting against a lot of preconceived notions, you know, as you do in the workplace. It was actually a lot because once I sort of, you know, started forming bonds with my team, I now realized that the startups that were partnering with us at the time had also received the same gist of preconceived notions about who I was and how difficult I was to supposedly work with. Interesting. So they'd already been briefed, so they were staying away and trying to find a way to conduct their business without dealing with this dragon lady that they had brought into... Oh, was the impression that you were like high on lady or stuff? Whatever they heard. But anyway, though, most of the time, ladies that are doing well and executing well at the workplace are always conceived as... Yeah, but ladies. somehow we all keep getting called dragon ladies. Like, how does that happen? We all know it. Everybody knows it. But it's kind of like you see a woman, she's doing well. You know, she must be. And I'm like, why, 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 why do we still work with that assumption? But, you know, so I started reaching out to them one by one and sort of forming my own relationships with them. And it's so funny. If there's a phrase that has been repeated at me the most coming back to Nigeria and working, it's you are completely different from what I heard. Interesting. It, that is the most consistently stated phrase to me, most consistent. Like, I, I, it's funny, I got wind of some of these preconceived notions and I became the chairman of the rumor mill. I, like, hi, my name is Adia and, and these are all the things that you're going to hear about me. Funny, right? Okay, now can we just carry on, you know, getting to know each other? And just Because it was very hurtful to be on the receiving end of these things. Right? Yeah, so I wanted to know. ask how hurtful is that? Yes, because yes. no matter how much we try to be strong, none of us is totally immune from 
the perception that people have of us. No. Nobody is no. totally immune from no, no, that. No, 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 no. It's never fun to walk into a room and somebody just summarily says, oh, I heard you. Like, it's really hurtful. Like, where do you start that conversation from? So you're essentially starting from below zero. You've got no chance because the person has already sort of formed an opinion and already started making decisions. And then when you're in a business setting, more importantly, like somebody has said something about you that has essentially come to mess with your goal. Like you're trying to achieve at work. You're trying to focus on your goal. But people are just like, well, what is she wearing today? Who is she sleeping with? You know, what did she say to that person? Or the way she answered me in that meeting is as if she has no home training. I've come back to my father. I said, people say you didn't do your, your job. Right? But so this is also another interesting thing is because I'm Urobo, the requirements for relationships period are, are different. You know, if you know many people from the South-South, we're usually sort of very plain speakers. And, you know, we genuflect and show respect. But the way we show respect is quite different than maybe other areas of the country. Now, I don't have a fully studied approach to this, right? But I think you respect a Delta, you know, or a Southerner by being truthful under almost all circumstances. You don't be rude. You've got to be tactful. But, you know, um, other cultures sometimes will require respect because that's what they demand. It doesn't matter whether you mean it or not. It doesn't matter whether the person has earned or taken an action that merits that respect or not. You just got to issue that respect. So what that means sometimes is that you find that uh, um, Deltans, particularly Bijo people as well, even Ibos, they'll give you respect that is commensurate with who you are and what is due. And how do they measure that? It's the quality of the greeting sometimes. Okay, that's from the receiving end. But how do I measure whether you deserve the respect? Is it by the no, no, age it depe- or by what you have contributed to the relationship? So it depends, right? So it also depends. This is me coming from America. My boss at the time was solid 30 years older than me. I tried the whole nickname thing and then he gave me a nickname that I didn't like. And I was like, uh-huh. I did that so that you would call me by my first name. Okay? But then you do that with the CEO of the organization and then you try to do that, you know, through the rest of the organization because that is the official culture. But unofficially, there are people that are upset with you because, you know, they're like, I didn't like the way she said my name. I did not like the tone. She said it like we are mates. Or she did not call me by my nickname or my initials. What or... do you mean nickname? I say... So you'll find that often there are a lot of older people in organizations are referred to by their initials. By the initials. Okay, so like um, M-O, uh, D-O, uh, yes, exactly. F-O. Exactly, okay. which I later came to understand is a gesture of respect since, you know, you don't want to say their first name, right? Because you are not the same age. If you say their first name, there is a disrespect that is implied, but you don't necessarily need to call them sir or madam, right? right. You know, as a rule. So you can get by by mixing up sir and madam versus the initials. Yeah. Yes. And that usually sort of bails you out. If you are uninformed, you kind of walk into a situation and you're just like, dotu, 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 and then dotu is carefully like, who is this individual just addressing me directly? Where do I know you from? Who do you think you are? And that can affect your relationship with that person from the word go. Yep, yep. But this is a problem that the quote-unquote returnees will have. So I have bailed out many a returnee because as they've come off the plane, I've just come and said, look, 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 these are the things you should do. Because there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast from the start in the US and the UK. Okay. How would they identify that? Or should you just have a blank way of saying, okay, everybody I meet in Nigeria that is, I think, I perceive to be older than I should not call them by their first name? I think it's worth... Don't make any assumptions, right? Because you've been away from Nigeria, so you don't know what's valid or not anymore. Ask somebody that 
was a returnee before you who has been here for a few years to kind of just give you an unofficial sort of code of conduct, let you know where some of the potholes are going to be. I find that that's the only way. And listen, you really, really need to listen because otherwise you just unnecessarily go through the same process that has driven people in some cases out of the country. And is there some nuance around this as well that depending on the assumption of you you in the sense that if you have a pure American accent and you feel that this person or you were a mix and you feel that this person never lived in Nigeria, this person is Onyibo even though he has a Nigerian name. So I can excuse that. But someone is Adia and has a bit of Nigerian accent, didn't study in Nigeria to some extent and just assume that you are an issue you understand that. You're not really going to get a pass. Once your name is Nigerian, there's an or expectation. Even, even, even if you are, you've never lived in Nigeria. <sighs> You might get a tiny one, but then they will now school you when you come back. This is how we do it in Nigeria. People will tell you. Well, at least they will let you, when you've made the mistake, people will let you know you've made a mistake. Do you understand? So there's still an expectation. Once you are of Nigerian heritage, there is an expectation. Like I've taken meetings with people that don't know how to say their name properly. Like you have somebody who can say, my name is Dotun. And I'm like, eh, what did you say? Say your name properly, my friend. You know what I mean? You should know how to say your name properly. You know, so this, but I mean, that's the cultural lesson I will give. But that person could have easily walked into my office and just kind of knocked, oh, um, Adia, I sent you an email, you know. They've never met you before. They come in, address me by my first name. They they come in, they're already expecting a response to an email. But depending on who you are dealing with, there have been some people, this even happened to me this week, someone was about to send me an email and they called me first to say, Adia, I am about to send you an email. Now, the reason this person did that was because I'm a director and they're not. So as a measure of respect... Please accept this email from my humble inbox. It needs you to review it. But that's a stream. That's Nigeria. No. And, and so, so, if so, I send you an email mm-hmm. as a director, even though I'm the junior executive, and it's an important email, and you refuse to read it because I've not called you, that's mm-hmm. on you, not on me. No, that's not the way it works. I'm being honest with you. These are the pitfalls that I fell into. I would send emails to people with the expectation of an answer, but because I had not socialized the email. Critical, if it's a mission critical information that you need to read, and take action on. And you're expecting I should have called you before sending the email. That defeats the purpose. Then I should call you to say, hey, I want to call you now to call you about my email. That's a, <laughs> that, that's a bit stupid. Don't characterize it. Because that's the other thing I learned to do, right? Is I tried not to characterize Nigerian behavior with British or American terminology. Otherwise, you will be frustrated, right? Because you are branding that behavior as illogical, as subtracting from the goal where the person who is on the receiving end is being disrespected and can actually gain agreement from other people who will agree that they have been disrespected. Interesting. Good. So you need to ask yourself whose philosophy is going to win your fancy British or American one or the prevailing one in Nigeria. These are the things you have to ask yourself. So you have to become, um, I had to become quite the politician. Interesting. To just know how to try and navigate. And it is all nuanced. It's not something that I take for granted that I, I will sort of operate under and not trip up. I'm still, you know, readily willing to accept feedback that I've made a mistake even today, right? But literally there were times where, you know, you are dealing with someone and because you've not socialized what you need appropriately, you won't get a response. Interesting. Mm. I think that's a call I see for a lot of people that are listening to this podcast or so making that move to come to the country. And I think there's so many other stuff that you didn't talk about that actually it's a masterclass <laughs> on that. Let's talk about the next phase. Right? Yes. Yesterday was the last day at yes. Nine Mobile. What's next? A lot of sleep actually. I haven't I haven't taken a voluntary break since I started my career. So I want to take a little one and I want to take a step back to just sort of 
review what I know of the ecosystem from the perspective that Why I have. What ecosystem are we talking about? I guess the digital product or tech ecosystem, basically, right? And it's kind of like, so we talked earlier about how if telcos are the prevailing means to reach customers because that is the prevailing means to connect to the internet, we have to nail partnering with telcos. It's actually not an option, right? So it's not about who has the power. It's about it is a necessity. So a necessary sort of part of the product development curriculum needs to be what's the mobile aspect of this product, right? How are you using mobile to support your customer experience or drive adoption for your product, right? So, and I, I feel like I have enough sort of perspective to try and sort of create a living example of what good looks like because the telcos aren't perfect. So the way my unit was, right? We suffered from the same sort of challenges any company that is trying to create an innovation, a unit responsible for the next generation of products. We still had the same struggles with the core product, right? Every company that's trying to reinvent its product portfolio has this issue, right? Because the new products are coming out of a unit that's separate from the unit that makes the core products. You are, you know, debating for resources and it's kind of chicken and egg. You've got this thing you think is going to be great, but the guys that are bringing in 90% of the revenue are going to be like, sorry. It's distracting. You are distracting me. I have money to make here. Do you know what I mean? And it's very natural for the whole organization to understand those products much better, for your CFO to react to where the money is coming from. It's kind of like all these experiments, these things you're annoying us with are not really important, right? So we had those sort of classic challenges. Even though we made enormous strides within my team, you know, and we actually got to a point where we were contributing a significant enough portion of the revenue for the CFO to call me and say, okay, Adia, what, what do you need? What does your team need? How can I support your growth, right? You get to that point, but you've not really necessarily taken, changed everything, right? So digital transformation is a word that people bandy about a lot, you know, but um, it's actually very, very difficult to achieve, especially if you are coming from a structure that was not built from the ground up that way. So just swaying the opinion within an organization that is massive and complex and is already under the weight of significant goals and not telling them to uh, about digital, it's really, really hard. hard. So I feel like um, I hit the limit of what I could Do achieve within the organization you know and and i was ready to just pass the baton to somebody else to sort of adventure does the change in the company name and brand and ownership have anything or contribute to that decision (sighs) i mean it's always going to create a little bit of discomfort right but i've been through that sort of stuff before from different sides right so i've been in the company that's doing an acquisition you know i've been laid off these are things that have happened you know to me so it's kind of like as long as you're getting paid there's really nothing to really panic about we've all got our qualifications and our experience and they are inherently sellable to someone else so i really don't see the need for panic. I probably am a more logical individual than most. But yeah, look, I'd still reach the point where I was within 12 months of an exit anyway. So okay, just... but this has been in the works. Yeah, if it I would have that. happened even if that. Yeah, didn't yeah it happen. would have So what next? You want to have some sleep? Yes. You want to have some break? Yes. Travel. Yes. And after that, I'll find a product that will be a living example. I think of what I think a good partnership between an innovative company and right. the telco should look. Because like. I have a strong thesis around that. I do. The yeah. telcos have not been maximized enough. As they I should don't be. think and so at all. A product that could actually outside the telcos yes. that could be built to take advantage of some of the networks and some yep. of the distribution Absolutely. power. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much that can be done, but I think it's better to sort of lead with examples, right? And even the examples that are out there now are not so with back tunes that's tough to copy airtime loans that's also tough to copy and unfortunately because the ship on that business sailed many years ago it's tough to now try and enter that business now right but i think there are elements of things that can be derived from those things right like first of all remember you asked me what type of marketing works or why marketing by sms doesn't work 
what these products have is because they sort of marketed themselves at the point of need to the customer, right? So it's kind of like you won't hear anything about borrowing airtime until your airtime is low. Interesting. Right? So, so literally it's at that point, that, but this is again because you have access to the information that's within the network, right? So you can see, okay, this person's airtime is low. Can they now receive an automatically generated voice prompt or SMS to say to them, okay, you can go ahead and use this product because you kind of need it right now or you probably are thinking about using it right now. Right? So one of the things I try to do is encourage people to build products at the point of need. Uh, ring back tunes, I'll give you another example. The most effective way bar none to sell a ring back tune is when someone copies it after hearing it on yes. someone else's line. Bar none. So it's kind of like you know, you now ask yourself, why do you do SMS marketing when you can see the effectiveness of this other channel? So one of the things we started doing is we now started doing regional rotations, right? So basically regional rotations of the tunes. So a lot of people have a default tune, right? Because they may like the theme song of Nine Mobile or whoever, you know, is on there. And it may be a free tune, that's fine, right? So for people that had not necessarily indicated a strong preference for the tune that they wanted, we would rotate the default tune that people would hear when they call them. Right. And then what we would also do is that we may now use an Igbo language song in the Southeast. Right. You know, an Owambe song in the Southwest and, you know, a Hausa song in the North. And then we now use that to try to increase the listening Adoption. visibility. Yeah of these songs so that people will have an opportunity to copy to a copy song it. because they've heard it. Is there a place where you, because you mentioned something that was quite key. One of the best ways in which you can sell color tunes is for people to listen to it and then adopt it and copy it. Is there a place for using that as an advertising model so there where is. you called you and I listened to it and I said this blah, blah blah copy this so that you can get paid yes get paid for listening to this advert yes 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 yes. Uh, oh no get paid when everybody calls you to listen to this advert yes so we tried to work with a couple of partners who wanted to do that but nobody could actually execute what was breaking down in the execution the technical know-how they couldn't build they the couldn't technology build they couldn't build that would enable me to be using the advert mm -hmm. as a color tune for me. Mm -hmm. And every time people call me, mm -hmm. I get paid mm -hmm. in maybe airtime. Mm -hmm. What's hard about that? I don't know. Okay, maybe somebody's listening <laughs> to this that can view that. Hey, I say have at it. But yeah, no, no, no. I, oh God, last time we had this conversation was almost two, three years ago. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. And sometimes these things are tough because, you know, you're dealing with carrier-grade infrastructure, which is at a level of complexity and, you know, know-how that is quite different from, you know, someone that may or, you know, may know JavaScript or something, right? So the patience that it takes and the determination it takes to sit down and get it, actually... Is it not the same technology that you use for color to I actually to don't promote? know. I'm not a technical person anymore, but it would be great if somebody could sort that out. Okay, right. We're going to end this interview by me asking you some series of fire and questions. Most of these questions were basic, adapted for entrepreneurs, but then I can use it for you as well. Okay. So while you are leading your business or your, the aspect of the business you're leading, what was your biggest business pain point predictability of outcomes that's a hard one for everyone it's a hard one for everyone right so after the first year where i missed my financial target by the skin of my teeth i was very very determined at that point right because now i finally had a role where people could see the numbers i could be fairly judged very visibly by just the numbers just the right numbers. where it was quite subjective in my previous role and strategy so i was eager to actually, you know, Proof. meet my targets. So what I did was, you know, sat down, selected a bunch of products, put them in the pipeline, right? And then things just started happening. This uh, integration takes, you know, much longer than you expected it to. Some product did not get past 
Q&A testing, another product, the partner disappeared because they ran out of funding. Some excuse that then they could just appear or the contract took too long to negotiate. You know, maybe we didn't get enough marketing or whatever, right? It was a multi-step process and you really couldn't predict which step was going to give way for which product, right? So what we now started doing was we started overstuffing the pipeline, basically. So my approach to that was like, okay, whatever the excuse, I've got something else I can put in the pipeline and just keep it moving through. So you take as long as you like, because I was really struggling to sort of wrap some structure and predictability around sort of meet a partner, get them onboarded and a contract signed in X period of time, you know, negotiate against a set or rate sheet or whatever, or parameters, you know, build the product, get the integration out, set up VPN, you know, bring the thing out, get it tested. It comes out, it actually works and the customers find it. It's just all of that. There were just too many steps. There were just different breaks, you know, because remember, I was also trying to diversify the product portfolio. So it wasn't like I was putting the same widget through the supply chain, uh, you know, yeah. at the same time. It was always different widgets, but in my head, I could see how to standardize the process. Right. But I couldn't get anybody else to see it quite that way. Right. So what we just did was, you know, if in a given year I needed 10 widgets to meet the goal, I'd just get something like 30. 30, so that becomes you. 30, 50, 100. So that predictability of the pipeline conversion yeah. and timeline. Yeah. And- Okay. And ultimately revenue, right? Because at the end of the day, revenue was all we chasing. What's what you're chasing? Yeah. What was your number one growth metric that indicates that you're growing? I know you mentioned revenue, but what will indicate that is the conversion of the pipeline or the number of partners or the number of products that you can get? So again, for me, I'm, I'm very brass tax. Revenue is what they sent me to find. So it's right. revenue I was looking for, right? So what was I doing? I was diversifying the product portfolio. I was trying to optimize the supply chain so that it was predictable. I was onboarding more partners. I, you know, we were trying to build products across different technology bearers. So basically, when I say bearer, I mean USSD, IVR, as opposed to just SMS, right? Right. So we're doing many things at once, but the ultimate goal was for them to so just... every week you're looking revenue. at numbers revenue. How much every did we day. Make, how did we contribute to every, every day? day. So you have a data staff. Yes. Every day, how much are we contributing to the bottom line? Yeah. Okay. Because the way we worked internally right is we know how much money we're supposed to make on a daily basis and we've actually pretty much said you know uh, from day one to day 365 this is the revenue that you need to make this is the pace at which it needs to be going for you to reach the goal that you're trying to get to inside the telco you don't really leave that to chance wow so we know that mondays i pick top up day we know sundays are low or you know in terms of top up amount so we've built our business plans around it so we're like okay in week one this is how much we're supposed to so what are your levers that you then pull to make sure that you get achieve those targets so in my case i made sure that i was constantly sort of working with my partners to find new ways to make money. I was constantly finding partners that had these ideas while I was sweating the existing set of partners that I had. Because I remember when we got in, we had something like 20 partners and I left there with something like 200 partners. I mean, so you're increasing the breadth of the number of partners that you're working with. You're asking them to, you know, bring more products. You're giving them ideas. You're, you know, discussing opportunities with them and you're like, bring it, bring it, bring it, bring it, right? So that, again, I could stuff the pipeline as full as possible while I was now trying to work inside the organization to just make the pipeline move faster. And I'm like, okay, we We've launched this product before. Can't we sort of get this down to like a 30-day cycle? Then the new ones can now take a year. So you're looking at the velocity yeah. of conversion because that will increase you. So that's what you can tweak. Can we increase the number of times that people come in on board and then they are live and then buy? And mm-hmm. then you can also stuff the beginning of the top of the funnel mm-hmm. because you know that the more there, then the more conversion you can have. And, mm-hmm. and then you're also talking to customers, right? So once you see you have a cohort group of customers that likes a particular product, you're like, okay, yeah, how big is this cohort group really? Right. So there'll be some people that will naturally just take up a product because they are sort of at the beginning of the adoption cycle. But then once those ones have sort of taken up that product and I'm like okay are there other football lovers on the network how do I find them then yes. you now chase them with all your other sports related uh, products and so on and so forth so wow. it's a multi-pronged approach interesting interesting which book are you reading at the moment oh my god I'm trying to get um, a 
book called Bang, which is about making a, a strong impact with your brand in right. a noisy marketing environment. Who, who wrote the book? Oh, I can't but the title is called Bang. Bang, yes. Then uh, after that, I'm hoping to pick up The Sovereign Individual again. What's the book about? The Sovereign Individual is a very interesting book about how society will evolve in the information um, age. You, you really should pick it up and read it. I mean, I, I've only read like 30 pages and it's already sort of like adjusted the axis upon which I'm thinking. It's a heavy book. But it's a really good book to try to get to if you're thinking about the impact of connectivity and technology on society. Fantastic. I'll definitely check it out. Um, which business, apart from, again, iMobile, is getting you excited at a oh, particular wow. business? I'm going to have to think about that one. It might take me a minute. God, I'm terrible with picking single things I'm interested in. Um, but let me come back to my perspective, right? So the API business, right, um, may not sound like a business to a lot of people, but, but it's, business that take advantage of APIs. Yes, because I have this thesis that mobile infrastructure, digital infrastructure can and should replace physical infrastructure, even in emerging economies where physical resources are lacking. You know, so and APIs kind of start to do that, right? So there's a lot of sort of uh, physical traffic or movement of information. Is it because of the fluidity of APIs that enable one particular system to interact with another system and create a lot of interchange and also utility across board and that makes this one to do so the two of them having a synergy that they can do better and faster than what they were done individually and API enables them to be able to interact that way. Yeah, is, that, exactly. is that one of the reasons? Yeah, so by definition, that's what they do, right? So that offers opportunities because it's kind of like, okay, you're doing this thing. I don't have to do it anymore. Um, how can we make each other's lives easier? What, what are we exchanging? I think APIs have a way of creating a symbiotic digital relationship that drives value um, in the participating businesses. Right? So but your, I, your thesis is now built on top of that. Yeah. That, that will replace physical infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I actually really think so. Especially when you now make that mobile. Then it becomes really, really interesting. So right now, um, money doesn't move in Nigeria, you know, as fast as it possibly can. People like you and I have bank accounts to just, you know, log into your whatever app send money but sending money to someone else you know that's not in like an urban center is a much more difficult task so how do you exchange so when you're not exchanging value with the minimum amount of time the revolution of your economy is you are trapped in cash and right now our economy is trapped in the physical infrastructure that is cash so if that was digitized I mean imagine how much the money moves the information moves I mean trade will move things will just sort of you know revolve um, so, sort of multiply faster is that so are you then interested in what has been happening in the fintech space that are taking a advantage of APIs to build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, really, it was also part of my remit in my previous roles. So, APIs are interesting. I think the strong use cases that have come out for communication would be for financial services. Uh, maybe even exist for advertising, right? Okay. The ones that I think are yet to come out are for things like authentication and identity management. Okay. And then maybe sort of cross-pollination and like business development. That hasn't started happening yet, right? Um, I guess this would be the one thing that I would have loved to be able to do before I left left nine mobile but it would have taken a little bit more time but you can build on top of that in your next phase yeah is that what you would like to pursue in your next phase <laughs> if it's possible because I mean it's really complex right not actually a simple endeavor to uh, undergo but yeah I find the use of APIs within emerging markets to be particularly fascinating I mean we don't have data here right but there are businesses out there that are just casually collecting data that could sort of have mutual benefits to other people you hmm. know? they just think about that toll gate like what all the people that are passing they're passing on a daily basis you know these guys have cars they need insurance they need I mean, all kinds of things that happen it's pretty it's pretty limitless the possibilities with APIs now 
figuring out whether that type of business model can eventually make money because Nigerians are very hostile to sort of intermediaries and so middlemen. Are we going to see Adia now working in or founding or investing or being part of a company <laughs> that is doing that? Some founders would probably like to hear me sort of take my own medicine, right, and, and do some of the things I've been asking them to do. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely something I'm considering, which is why this time off is important, right? So, I'm not really sure, but having spent almost two decades working in massive organizations, I definitely want to do something um, different with an organization of a much smaller scale. What that looks like exactly, I really don't know. That's interesting. Adia, it's been interesting chatting with you. I find it really, really fascinating, intriguing, and actually educating. Thank you, Dodger. I appreciate it. I hope a lot of people will find it interesting as well. Yeah, I, I hope so too. <laughs> it's been great talking to you. Thank you, Dodger. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organizations for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. Do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that would be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super-targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audience through this podcast, we would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H E. L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.